KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. In 1968, George A. Romero changed the horror landscape and the world forever. Sure, we had zombies before him, but none captured the imagination of audiences and filmmakers in quite the same way. The Survival Command Center at the Pentagon has disclosed that a ghoul can be killed by a shot in the head or a heavy blow to the skull. Officials are quoted as explaining that since the brain of a ghoul has been activated by the radiation, the plan is, kill the brain and you kill the ghoul. When Romero made Night of the Living Dead, he essentially invented the modern zombie. Potential distributors, however, were not initially impressed and asked him to change the film's bleak ending. But Romero simply said, fuck you. That pretty much set the tone for Romero's relationship with the mainstream film industry. Like John Waters, he's a filmmaker who remained outside the industry, Pittsburgh to be precise, making the films he wanted to make. And what he wanted to make were films that reflected what was going on in the world, be it racism, classism, or consumerism. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center, one of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory of what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. The great thing about Romero's films is that you can enjoy them in any of a number of ways. Take any of his dead films. If you want a zombie gore fest, he delivers a bloody thrill ride of horror fun. But his films can also be appreciated as examples of truly independent filmmaking, in which Romero has complete control over everything from casting to bleak endings to tone. His films serve up primers on how to work with little or no money outside the Hollywood system. And finally, if you want something a little meatier, you can always chew on the social commentary mixed in with all the blood and gore. Life goes on at Fiddler's Green, in the heart of one of America's oldest and greatest cities. Bordered on three sides by mighty rivers, Fiddler's Green offers luxury living in the grand old style. Dine at one of, dine at one of six fine restaurants. Look at that perfect gift in our fully stocked shopping mall. And it sure did used to make it sound nice. Yeah. Still sounds nice to me. To appreciate his craft, let me talk about just one scene. Consider the opening of Diary of the Dead, which is not even thought of as one of his best works. 628 Tremont, 6283 Dead. It begins with a TV news cameraman placing his camera on a tripod, which is a bit like flipping off all those found footage films that think shaky cam somehow makes them more realistic. And then he even dusts off the lens. The cameraman is filming a TV reporter on the scene of a double murder and suicide. 
When an ambulance pulls up, he tells them to move because they're ruining his shot. Hey guys, Channel 10 News. Listen, uh, you're kind of blocking our shot. Can I get you to move forward a bit? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Foreshadowing Romero's themes about how the media manipulates even the simplest of things. As the female reporter begins to deliver her story on camera, we hear the cameraman exclaim that the dead bodies are moving. Jesus. What? I don't believe this. What? Is there something with the camera? Just fix it. She's still moving. Oh, for Christ's sake, Brody. I'm right in the middle of a what? What? But we can't see anything because the reporter, center framed, is blocking our view. I felt myself leaning to one side to try and see around her. Romero is denying us a good view of the action, which has the effect of pulling us in even more. Then he delivers some nice gore as the dead bodies rise up and begin snacking on the startled humans. In just these opening minutes, Romero reveals more filmmaking smarts than most horror films display in two hours. He clearly defines the first-person point of view that the film will take. He also reveals sly humor in his shot choices, he delivers the gore, he hints at the themes of media manipulation, and he creates a scene that he can go back to later in re-edited form to show how the truth can easily be manipulated. All that in about five minutes. That's efficient filmmaking. We downloaded a lot of what we found on television, on the net, off blogs, images and commentary over those first three days. Most of it was bullshit. None of it was useful. This is what we were getting from the news networks. None of us can claim to know exactly what has caused the chaos we've been experiencing. Some kind of germ, some kind of a natural epidemic. calamity or you can't talk sort about of massive or monstrous hoax. I'm old enough to remember Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, possibly the greatest hoax ever perpetrated. And that was when it was just radio. Now it's 24 7. This is some kind of hoax. People are willing to believe almost anything. Romero made his reputation on the series of dead films he created over more than half a century. But perhaps the film that best represents his abilities as a filmmaker is his 1978 Martin, which will be showcased this year at Horrible Imaginings Film Festival in September. Showing Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead would probably have been a more obvious and popular choice for a tribute screening, and more likely to fill seats since those films are better known. But Screening Martin shines a spotlight on a film that's been largely overlooked and will hopefully open people's eyes to Romero's work outside the zombie genre. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. It's not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. But I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. Martin is brilliant for multiple reasons. First, it serves up a twist on the vampire tale by having a character that may or may not be a vampire. Romero perverts the genre by never confirming whether or not Martin is a vampire or just a psychotic teenager who wants to be one. Martin craves blood, but doesn't have any fangs to suck blood from his prey. So he needs to carry a syringe with a sedative to knock out his victims and razor blades to cut open their veins. People don't realize that those things I see in the movies are not real. 
I don't have a whole lot of women. It's nice to watch them. I watch them a lot all the time. I have to, to be sure that nothing goes wrong. I follow them. I plan. I'm very careful. I have needles now. I can use them. I can put them to sleep. And it doesn't hurt. Romero then layers in social observations about such post-Vietnam issues as drugs, economic devastation from the recession, and a crisis in faith. Martin, another kind of terror. I would like to be like everyone else. I have to do things that I don't necessarily like to do, but I want to stay alive. I do need blood. From the director of Night of the Living Dead, With Martin, Romero shows what you can do with a small budget and how you can tackle stories that mainstream Hollywood would never touch. But Romero's lasting legacy will be zombies, and that's not a bad thing. I had wanted this tribute podcast to come out sooner, but so much has been going on, and so many artists have recently died. In addition to Romero, we've lost Adam West, my first and most beloved Batman, Martin Landau, and just the other day, Haru Nakajima, the man who brought Godzilla to such vivid and iconic life. Okay, so before anyone else departs this world, let me get this tribute to George A. Romero finally out there. I've been delaying it because finishing the podcast is somehow confirming that he's really gone. He's a man that I admire both as a fiercely independent filmmaker and as a genuinely kind and sweet man. For this tribute, I'll have some highlights from The Vigil in San Diego, some fan appreciations, and an archive interview with Romero from 2008 when Diary of the Dead came out. Romero died last month on July 16th, right before San Diego Comic-Con, and Jennifer Muskies had no choice but to hold a vigil for him. Jen is the founder and director of Zombie Walk San Diego, and no self-respecting zombie could pass up the opportunity to pay tribute to the man who has done the most for the undead. So on Saturday night, July 22nd, during Comic-Con, Jen called a gathering of zombies and Romero fans for a vigil. I spoke with her just before the vigil and impromptu zombie walk took place. So, Jennifer, explain where we are and what is about to happen. We're at Children's Park across from the Convention Center in San Diego during San Diego Comic-Con International. And we just had a horror cosplay meetup. And at 8 o'clock, we're going to be having a George Romero Remembrance Vigil to honor the life of the undead master. Now, you have a long history with the undead. You organize Zombie Walk here in San Diego. So tell me what inspired you to do that and what it is about zombies that attracted you. Well, I had moved to San Diego in 2006, and within several months, I decided I'm going to start a zombie walk to find like-minded weirdos to maybe become friends with. And oddly enough, it worked because I got a very diverse group of friends out of it. And... I think that's kind of the attraction to zombies for me and everybody is you can be from any walk of life and be anyone and you know the the walking dead is probably the biggest fear of you know immortality and having to like lose who you are and 
You know, it's just the unknown and you don't have any control over yourself. And it's just, it's the biggest fear I have is a lack of control. Cause I'm very type A OCD, you know, person. And I, I legitimately have OCD and the idea of not having control over my body, my thoughts, everything, it's just, it's terrifying. But you know, to conquer your fears, you kind of have to get into it. and. For me, that's becoming a zombie in the best way I know how and not dying. <laughs> so I participated in the LA Zombie Walk and when I moved to San Diego, I decided um, that why not get a bunch of people together and I, I thought, okay, well maybe I'll get a dozen people to show up and I, I put an ad on Craigslist and this was back in the days of MySpace and I created a page and I figured, okay, there might be you know, 15, 20 people that show up and I'll be happy, that'd be awesome. If I get a dozen people, like I said, it'd be great. 120 people showed up and media and press and I'm like wait what did I do I don't know how to handle this but it's it's been really fun because we've seen this community grow out of it and I've seen gotten to see kids grow up from being toddlers and babies into you know elementary school and middle school now and I have one girl that's starting her sophomore year of high school who was terrified of zombies until I got to do special effects makeup on her and now she loves everything horror and is starting her own horror webcast and there's another little girl that uh, about three, four years ago was terrified of zombies and her mom was a zombie on the news with us and I asked her, I wasn't zombified, but she, we were on a news broadcast and she came over to me and said, I need to be with you, I don't want to be a zombie. And I was like, okay. She was probably about five or six years old at the time and I was like, okay, you can protect me from the zombies. You're tough like that, right? You can, you can protect me. And she said, okay, and gave me this very terrified look and I said, it's okay, we'll be fine. You're, you're, we're going to protect each other, right? All right, we have each other's back. And now she's leading the zombie walk for me last year and went on the news and was the most terrifying zombie this, you know, on Friday morning when we did press. And here's this girl who's nine and loves zombies and everything zombie now. And to see kids do the same thing that I did, which was facing their fears and turning it into something that they can enjoy. And that's what I try to provide with the community. And just that as a sense for me to keep it going is to provide a sense of community and facing your fears and facing, you know, what, you know, what inspires you to just be more you and be more positive and put a positive spin on things. So, yeah. And what is it about George Romero in particular that you love or that you appreciate and are going to miss now? George had a flair for them being the most creative, subversive movie maker of our time. He took political issues, social issues, and turned them into something that was digestible on the surface. And then when you really got into it, it was like, wow, there's a really serious, thick statement here that I've got to digest and like eat up and, and really take in. And, I loved that he was able to do that with a sense of humor at the same time and he never took himself too seriously and it just the way that he presented entertainment like an entertaining way to look at these soci socio-political issues and social issues it's just it's great like you you can look at these movies and they're they're timeless and he was just a sweetheart of a guy too you know that that's what everybody who's met him has told me and what we all share is he was just a really genuinely down-to-earth, nice guy. Again, never took himself too seriously and truly appreciated his fans. Like, would take all the time that he could to really listen and speak and, you know, share ideas and creativity and really nurture people 
who wanted to get into filmmaking and storytelling and being creative and finding that outlet for anything going on going on up in your head and basically the antithesis of being a zombie <laughs> so i just i love that juxtaposition and he was just I, I think he's gonna go down in history as one of the greats because he's already seen as one of the greats and it's gonna last because I mean we wouldn't have zombies and horror like we have it without George Romero. And do you have a personal favorite zombie film of his? Oh my goodness I have to do Night of the Living Dead because that's the beginning that's that's the you know genesis of it all is Night of the Living Dead you know it's it's the creep factor in it because you you think okay this is gonna be an old cheesy movie whatever but it's still creepy I remember seeing it as a kid and freaking out like the kid behind me that's crying and like just crying like these these things are gonna come get me and remembering seeing the zombie faces in my window at night and being oh my god I'm terrified but then realizing wait a second, these aren't real, this is okay, let's go watch it again. So Night of the Living Dead is definitely my favorite. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. And do you think one of the things that's so terrifying about zombie films is that the creatures themselves look like us, they could be one of our loved ones, and there's this odd connection of it being us and it also being this thing that we might have to fight off that we once, a person we once knew. Yeah, like that's, I think one of the more terrifying things about zombies is that this could be you, this could be your mother, your sister, your child. I, it's been pointed out to me many times, child zombies are the creepiest because there's that innocence that is completely destroyed. and. I mean, to think that it could be your kid that you have to fight off, at what cost? Are you willing to die to, like, not kill your your zombified kid? It's That's scary. That's There's a lot to digest in that and a lot to, like, absorb and think about. And, like, people always talk about their zombie apocalypse plans, but nobody ever mentions what happens when your best friend is at your door coming to get you. So yeah, that's one of those things I don't think a lot of people really think about, but it's kind of there under the surface. So yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> and what are you hoping for this vigil to be tonight? Really, I just hope it's the, the hardcore fans that come out and are able to kind of connect with each other and, you know, have that sense of, you know, closure and, but at the same time, leaving the door open for great movie making, great storytelling, and, you know, expressions of creativity that we've all been inspired by George Romero, and be able to connect with one another, and, like I said, honor a man who really deserves more credit than he gets for putting entertainment where it is on the map, because look at all the horror movies and thrill movies that we have, that big box office dramas, that all these filmmakers were inspired by people like George Romero. So, I just, I, I think he needs, you know, to be acknowledged. So just acknowledging and thanking him.
Now I had a chance to talk to you almost 10 years ago when you were starting <laughs> Zombie Walk. So this is, it's like, let's talk about closure, coming back and seeing you again and, and talking to you here. But I remember when I interviewed you back then, you were, you had a social cause for your walk too, and you described zombies as no brains but big hearts. So <laughs> did you, did you kind of take from Romero that sense of social consciousness and want to keep that running through zombie walk and, and the things that you did? I want to say yes. However, I have to blame my mom for that. <laughs> I was raised in a house where social causes are a really big deal and taking care of your neighbors and taking care of your friends and family and the, the world at large is a very important part of life. And that's, I think, what made me connect with Romero is that whole social change and being socially aware. So yeah, it's it's tied to Romero, but I, my mom gets the credit for that. <laughs> And she's a really big, she's a huge supporter of Zombie Walk. So, I, you know, she loves what it is and loves that we've done food drives and Toys for Tots and, you know, all these great charities and philanthropy that we've been tied to over the years. Because you have a big group of people focused on one thing. There's power in numbers. If you can get all those people to bring a blanket or a coat or a pair of socks or a bag of socks, you know, and donate to a homeless shelter, that's a huge box of socks and coats and blankets. So yeah, that social thing is, we gotta look at the world at large, you know? And yeah, Romero did that. So thanks mom and thanks George Romero. <laughs> and can you describe the scene here? Cause it's not just people showing up in t-shirts with George Romero, but you have some <laughs> zombies too. Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty good mix. I mean, it's kind of half and half right now. Um, we have, you know, kind of, fold over from the horror cosplay meetup and you know the zombies are sticking around because it's George Romero how can you not it's it's pretty cool and I expect more people you know will show up at, that aren't zombies but right now it's you know about half and half so that's kind of cool to see all right well thank you very much thank you really appreciate you being here after we spoke she began handing out tea lights to people at the vigil she asked Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival to kick off the ceremony. He's followed by Dread Central's Steve, Uncle Creepy Barton. Um, as I see a lot of you here with uh, incredible uh, rotting flesh, your spine, by the way, is outstanding. The bride, the dead have come back, and that's what we're here for. We're here really to celebrate life and death in a weird kind of symbiotic way I think is amazing because of this man George. The only reason you all exist is because of this man George Romero. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, all of us, I think, have experienced the sideways glance from people we work with, from people we go to school with, from our family, from people who are, who are even our friends. When we talk about a film like Night of the Living Dead and talk about it as a piece of a masterpiece that means as much to us as any other work of art that we can think of, if not more, because it, it, it really digs deep. It, it's something that I watched when I was a kid. It's something that I shared with everyone, my mom, my grandmom, my brothers, my friends. And, and it opened up a world of possibilities of just scary movies meaning something so much more. And, and a lot of people just don't get it. They just don't understand that this horror movie with dead people walking around and eating entrails and, and uh, shotguns out of window panes um, can be something so intoxicating and something that really means something to us. 
but you all get it. And I think that that is something that creates a community. It's something that brings us together. Um, I want to say, I want to talk about sincerity, okay? So uh, the films that Romero made are just sincere as I don't know what. Charlie Brown, the, the great pumpkin Charlie Brown, sincerity is the eye can see. That is George A. Romero's filmography. And I think that's why we all um, really feel something for it. Uh, and it's not, we all talk about zombies. We're all here for the zombie walk. Thank you so much for this, by the way. It's really appropriate. <laughs> and George Romero did create the modern zombie. This is all because Romero, Walking Dead owes his, owes his estate like a gajillion dollars because he created all of this, but it's not just that. The same quality of sincerity can be felt in Creepshow. The same kind of sincerity can be felt in Night Riders. The same kind of sincerity can be felt in The Crazies. And the same kind of sincerity can be felt in my personal favorite, Martin. George Romero put a piece of his soul into every film he made. And I think that's why I almost cry when I talk about uh, this filmmaker, because um, when we watch his films, we felt that. We, we felt him. So I am lucky I met the man three times. But for those of you who may or may not have been lucky to meet him, you all did because of this idea that he put him so much of himself into his work. And that is why he is our horror grandpa. That is why we'll never forget him. It's the family connection and the power of art. Why Night of the Living Dead or any of his films are just as powerful as any other art I can think of. And I believe that to the very bottom of everything, I believe. It defies the notion that we should never meet our heroes. There's this idea that, oh, if you meet your heroes, you'll find out they're total dicks and like you'll never want to meet them again. But Romero, it wasn't that. You meet him and he is as sincere and amazing and he's such a real working class blue collar Pittsburgh schmo and he loves, I love him for that and, and he was the greatest. I want to end this really by saying as, um, as a film festival director who I spend my life putting together film programs showing them on the big screen, bringing a community together, talking about why they're important. And it all began with Night of the Living Dead and wanting to share it with everyone I knew. So I really owe everything in my mission to George Romero and what he gave to me. And, and that's who I am. I, it's who I am is because of him. George didn't just establish the zombie mythos, the modern zombie mythos. He established the horror community as we know it and the memories that we build with each other as we know them. And so, speaking of memories, I want to uh, invite and introduce the next person who's gonna speak. Memory is important here because uh, our next speaker, as the face of dreadcentral.com, he has continued the Romero tradition of fostering a horror community in the truest sense of that word. I see filmmakers here who got to know each other, starting with the, the, um, the efforts of Dread Central and, and sites like that, and these efforts too. 
He's been a prime force in just that community building that I'm talking about. And he has also been blessed to having a genuine friendship with George A. Romero. And I know all of this is super hard for him. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I want to bring up my friend, my colleague, Dread Central's Uncle Creepy, Mr. Steve Barton, is going to follow me now. Sometimes when you eulogize somebody, you have a tendency to make it about you, you know, instead of them. And sometimes you do it without even realizing you're doing it. And that's only because they meant so much to you. Having known George, and I said it last night, getting to be a personal friend to George is like Bigfoot telling you that you're cool enough to know he exists. <laughs> And that's the goddamn truth. And I was lucky enough and blessed enough to get to know George. But my relationship with him didn't start on a great note. I'm gonna tell you a real <laughs> quick story. I was three years old, okay? And this is gonna be story time with Uncle Creepy, but it's all about George, I swear. I was three years old and I waited for my parents to go to sleep and I went into the living room and we had this big giant black and white console TV that uh, it's a kind of TV. How many people remember that when you break them, they're now furniture, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and I went into the living room and I put on the TV and what was on was this newscast about the dead returning to life. And I said, Oh shit. <laughs> and I audibly said, oh shit, because I've had a potty mouth since I was like two. Uh, I woke up my parents that night to tell them that we had to get to rescue stations. They weren't happy when they got into the living room and I got my first spanking because of that. And I remembered that even though I was terrified out of my mind, I was absolutely safe, and it, it is that very reason why I've been chasing the horror genre my entire life. It's that rush, it's that adrenaline, it's that roller coaster, it's that controlled chaos. And I know you guys feel me, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Many years later, George's manager, when I had first started, um, breaking into the business, I had my first interview with my idol, the man who's responsible for every fiber of my being, because my parents sucked, okay? My parents were idiots, and I know you guys can feel that too, because we've all had family that are fucking assholes, all right? I learned my right and wrong. I learned my moral compass and which direction it was going to lead me from watching George Romero movies. <laughs> it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I don't know fucking why. Maybe it was the poorest decision he ever made, but maybe uh, George's manager, Chris, gave me George's hotel room key to wait for him. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What in the world do you do in George Romero's hotel room? <laughs> I hugged his pillows. <laughs> I sat in every conceivable chair I could find. I peed in his bathroom. 
Didn't even hold my dick. It was like free flying it, baby. <laughs> but it's okay, because I got real good aim. Right, Debbie? <laughs> George came in, and I was about as nervous as I could be. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, hey, man, let's bullshit. And that was it. I fell in love with the man whose movies I had fallen in love with. A couple years later, we, we remained friends, we remained close, we always stayed in touch, and I got a phone call about six or seven years ago, and it was George, and he's like, hey Steve, listen, I got this thing going on, man, and uh, I can't possibly be asked you to be one of the living, so you want to come up and be a zombie? No. No. Here's the thing, when, when when you get a phone call from George Romero to ask you to be a zombie, you don't hesitate. You book a flight. <laughs> you, you look for carrier pigeons. You look for erect a giant slingshot if you have to and hope for the motherfucking best. But you go, okay? This is the last story I'm gonna share with him, share with you guys for George, because it was one of the most inspirational things. I got a chance to watch Picasso paint, and that was amazing. And I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing there, you know? George was, hey, Steve, we're going to put you in makeup. We'll see you in a little bit. I'm like, all right, I'm the happiest guy in Canada. My balls are tucked into my stomach because it's freezing. But I have a smile from ear to ear. I don't care. Uh, I got into the makeup chair, and Sean Sampson was there. He works for K&B. And I'm like, Sean, listen, I'm a friend of George. I don't want to be gray guy. I don't want to be blood smudge guy. I'm bald. Fuck me up. <laughs> okay? So he put on some really killer makeup, and I got to do some background stuff, and I I'm bucket list checked. I have no bucket list anymore. I can't complain. The last night of filming, it was about 15 below zero. Uh, we're all standing around freezing. It's the middle of the night and at, and I'm sure my friend Michael Felscher, who'll probably see this, can tell you at 4 a.m. everything is a cock joke. No matter what it is, it's a cock joke. <laughs> and you, if you watch Survival of the Dead, know that all the zombies in that pen were habitually making cock jokes the entire time <laughs> they were there. It's about 5 a.m. now and George comes up to me and goes, all right, Steve, we're gonna do the main kill of the movie, and you're gonna do it, and we got one shot because we only have one body. <laughs> Pressure. <laughs> I, I, I became possessed. I, I don't, all I know is, um, he let me do the scene and <laughs> When you're in 15 Below, one of the things you don't realize is when you come up with stage blood all over your hands and face, it immediately starts freezing. <laughs> and it, it was akin to wearing mittens made of pain. <laughs> That's the best way I could describe it. But when George was on set, you could tell when George was having a good time because he would get this big fucking smile that only he had. And you all know that smile real well because you've seen it, you've heard that laugh, 
And he walked over to me after it was over, and it took a while because the body was frozen. So we took like four minutes to rip it up. In the movie, it's like fucking 30 seconds. But um, he went, Steve, are you okay? <laughs> and I got down on my knees, and I just said to him, thank you. And I just fucking hugged him right there. He cared about you guys. Every one of you, if he was here, he'd be looking around and he'd say, what the fuck's the matter with you? <laughs> and that's exactly what he would say, but that's who he was because he never thought he deserved the recognition or the adulation or any of that. He was just having a good time, man. He was telling stories. And believe me, he was genuinely touched. It would be so touched if he saw you guys right now. The reason his movies were so impactful is because they said something. They said, the MPAA could go fuck itself. <laughs> <laughs> but they also said something that was relevant to all of us. And a perfect example, and the thought I'm going to leave you guys with, and I really want to thank Jen for doing this. Let's hear it for her. I want to thank Miguel for being kind enough to introduce me. It's an honor, sir. Really. In 1967, the lead actor that George Romero wanted for Ben couldn't do it. And in his stead, he hired an African-American man, which back then was considered a, a real controversial decision. And he looks, and I've spoken to him about this, and George told me it, it wasn't because he was black. I didn't care about that. It's because he was the best guy for the job. And here we are decades later, and we could still learn a lot from George Romero. Thank you, guys. started because of George Romero showing up to Comic-Con to be Q&A'd by Max Brooks. So um, we did a Comic-Con zombie walk and we had a lot of zombies show up. <laughs> and I will tell you the early days of the Comic-Con zombie walk were the best. They got bigger and weirder, but I will tell you when people weren't expecting us, <coughs> Wow, <laughs> that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Families eating dinner, not expecting literally four to five to 600 zombies walking towards them and leering over their dinner plates as they were just, you know, trying to calm down after Comic-Con and decompress. Oops, sorry for the 3D entertainment, <laughs> but not really. I'm so glad that happened because so many of those people ended up joining our walks over the years and becoming part of our family and our community. We won new fans for George Romero over the years because they got into zombies and they, you know, talked to us, the people that started at the beginning who truly had a love for Romero and zombies and all things horror. And they got to talk to us and we got to give them film recommendations. 
illusions, and that was the greatest thing. Oh, when you get to destroy people's little illusion of what good horror is by introducing them to things like Creep Show. That's awesome. And the crazies. Oh my god. Okay, so I had a short story. I had a kid come up to me, third zombie walk, and said, you know, I really like Night of the Living Dead, but I really wanted to get into more Romero stuff. What should I watch? I didn't even think about it. I just said, you need to pick up the crazies. His mom was really mad at me. Um, so <laughs> he was only probably about 12 or 13. And I just, it's fun. It's fun to get kids into this stuff, which is why we're at Children's Park. Um, <laughs> like George, I, have, I enjoy subversive entertainment. And that's what Zombie Walk has become over the years, is subversive entertainment. And what's really cool is I was speaking to Beth earlier in an interview talking about the social good that Zombie Walk has done over the years. And did Romero have something to do with that? Yeah, Romero had a lot to do with that because I was raised in a family where being involved in social change and positive social change is what you should be geared towards your entire life. You should wake people up. You should make people think. You should get people in touch with the world at large and give them something more to consider. And that's what Romero's movies did on the surface and underneath that surface. There were multiple layers to everything he created and you had to think. It wasn't just mindless, brainless entertainment. You weren't an entertainment zombie. You had to think. If I can follow in the steps of George Romero and resurrect something that I love, I'm going to. And I can tell you, give me a year or two and Zombie Walk will be back at Comic-Con because I owe it to him to keep that community going. And if you're local to San Diego, we will continue doing the walk in October like we always have. We've built too much because of George Romero, and I will bring it back, I promise you. Yeah. It will come yeah. back. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you. I, I just want to thank you guys. Yes. I want to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Um, Zombie Walk has been my life force for the last decade. It has gotten me through the death of a parent. It has gotten me through the ending of a marriage. It has gotten me through the death of two very, very close friends of mine. And I always fall back on my zombie walk community and the fact that I have to keep going to keep this community going because it it means more to me that I get to, I get to continue in the tradition of George Romero of bringing social good and change to the world through zombies. So thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. That was Jennifer Moosekeys, founder and director of Zombie Walk San Diego. Since she brought up the 2008 Comic-Con panel where Max Brooks, author of World War Z, interviewed George Romero, I thought I'd include a little excerpt from that panel for you to listen to. I've never done this before. I've never introduced anyone. I don't really know how to do it. So uh, my only experience is watching uh, Spike Lee's movie where Malcolm X introduces Elijah Muhammad. So I'm just going to borrow from that. <laughs> Everything I am that I have learned. Tribute to this dear man. What is George Romero trying to say? What does he have going on? George Romero came here with 60 minutes of sleep. Amen. George Romero flew all the way from Canada. George Romero already has a project. Diary of the Dead, which is almost finished. And that's what we're going to talk about with many other things. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the Honorable George Romero. Thank you. Your film, the, the original zombie movies, the ones that you are obviously a product of your generation, one of the few filmmakers that actually still put social commentary, God forbid, in movies. Uh, and your generation had its own challenges. And what do you think challenges this generation the most? Oh, trying to have uh, faith in anything, I think. You know, it's just trying trying to find a reason to keep trucking, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know, institutions, individuals, uh, government institutions, uh, institutions of learning. I mean, it's just, where do you go, man? Where do you find the... Hard to find the heroes. Hard to find the heroes, yeah. So, I think that's probably the hardest thing to overcome, personally, and to, you know, maintain some kind of... Uh, Continued ambition for uh, you know any any sort of uh, inspiration. Is there uh, in in diary? Is there a social commentary? Uh, yeah, it's basically it's about media. It's about these pe these these people get become obsessed with doing what they're doing, shooting, and you know it's the whole commentary about how does uh, you know having having access to all of this and having seeing everything a million different ways. You know, just makes you immune to, to violence, or it inures you to you know that kind of violence. A desensitization. A desensitization. If you're constantly bombarded from every angle. Exactly. And what's happened to what happens to my characters is they get so desensitized that they just keep shooting, and you know they're just looking at the world that way, and that becomes enough. Right. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> If at some point I turn into the Chris Farley character from SNL, <laughs> just, uh, before we started, uh, we, I was telling him how much I liked a movie he made called Season of the Witch. Uh, it's nine people I've seen. <laughs> and how, Including you. Yeah, I, I, I loved it. I keep watching it. And if you, want to re, if you ever could remake it. Yeah, well, I, that's the only film that I've, that I've made that I would like to remake. I think it, it could be pertinent in a different way today. I have to, obviously, it needs a rewrite, but, you know, there are still women's issues and there are still, you know, jerky guys like her husband that are still, you know, brutal and, uh, and, and just to say nothing, not only insensitive, but actually brutal. And uh, so I think it, I'd like to remake it. I mean, it was a film we made, we made it on 90 grand, Ran out of money. So the brokerage that was raising money, you know, stopped sending checks suddenly, and so we had to hurry up and finish it. And so, I've always felt that it's not really uh, a complete work. Yeah. Uh, you know, we sort of managed to get a rope around it and finish it in a halfway decent way, but just given the resources that we had. But I'd like to take another whack at that. It's the only one that I think I'd like to try to redo. Hypothetically. Somebody gives you all the money you need to make any kind of movie you want. <laughs> a tax shelter, I don't know, but they do it. Um, Those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> what would you do? Uh, I'd probably try to, I'd probably make a bunch of movies. <laughs> <laughs> Take the money and say, hey, I, if I got a deal for you, I'll make them as long as I'm standing, you know? Um, I, that's probably what I would do. I don't have a desire and I don't have any particular project that I think needs, you know, that megabucks to, to right. pull it off. I don't have, you know, something sitting in the drawer that, uh, you know, I wish I had a hundred million dollars to make this. 
Um, I'd love to take a crack at something like that, but I don't know what it would be. And, you know, it's purely hypothetical because I'm, I'm not looking for that. Nobody's uh, chasing me, uh, you know, uh, with that kind of an offer. So I'm happy to just keep, I feel like I'm playing with electric trains or something. You know, I'm just happy to still be here and still working. And hopefully I got a couple of more films uh, in me and, you know, take it from there. Ideas come, I, you know, I get, I get, like everyone else, I guess, like, you know, where do you get your ideas? In the shower? I mean, I don't know, basically, yeah, we're off CNN. Uh, you know, you see something on CNN and go, whoa, man, what shit is this? <laughs> you know, then you, you know, that, that, it just sort of triggers, you know, all kinds of ideas. So my ideas come from that, and if I can you know, sort of uh, handily uh, figure out a way to do a story about it, then I'll, I'll sit down and try to write it. But you know, many of them are sitting, are, you know, still in the, on the hard drive, you know, half finished. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but who told you you could be a filmmaker? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, you're, you're this kid in the 60s, you said, I, I want to make movies. What, what, what was the inspiration? I loved movies. I didn't think that I could ever do it. Uh, I didn't, you know, I thought you had to be born royalty, you know, in order to ever be able to make a career out of it. And um, in those days, when my partners and I got together, we set up a little commercial production company, beer commercials, industrial <coughs> films, stuff like that, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, I, it, we were successful. But, you know, in those days, there were film lives. There was no such thing as uh, video. Uh, so cities the size of Pittsburgh had film lamps. Film lamps the size of Technicolor. I mean, big film lamps that were, you know, processing. And the news was on film. And that's where I first learned how to use the medium. I, I would bicycle the newsreels around to the TV stations. And I'd sit with these editors, you know, these guys with the flammable glue pots and cigarettes hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and really, that, that was at one of those labs, and, and working with the news guys, that, um, I, you know, I just sort of learned, oh, that's how you synchronize sound with picture, oh, that's a synchronizer, okay. Now I'm lost again with all this digital stuff, I, I, need, I need sprocket holes, you know. <laughs> when, so, when you did uh, Night of the Living Dead, obviously you didn't set out to start a genre. But at what point since did you turn around and say, I started a genre? <laughs> I haven't turned around and said that yet. Uh, I don't know, you know, I didn't think of these creatures as zombies. I basically ripped off the idea from a Richard Matheson novel called uh, I Am Legend, right? <laughs> Which I thought was very much about revolution. It's been made a couple of times in the I don't know if you know it. I well, there's Vincent Price and he was Vincent Price. Yeah. And it's the world is, everyone's become a vampire. Yeah. The world says turn vampire. And uh, he's the last man on earth and thus the title now of uh, human is, is legendary. Um, <clears throat> and I thought, gee, he started the story with where there was only one man left. And I, the story to me was very much about revolution, and I thought the best way to tell a story like that is to start at the beginning, on the very first night, and see what happens and how it develops. So I, I 
to that extent, I ripped off the idea, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a, uh, the first film, the first which I wrote originally as a short story. It's also a siege in a house, yeah. which is similar to what the, the novel was. Uh, I've, I've fessed up. He knows <laughs> we're still friends, or we, we were friends a couple of years ago, and um, no, no. I. I needed a creature. I need, you know, and I, so I said, okay, well, what's what would be one of the most revolutionary things that could possibly happen to mankind that he would be stupid enough to either not believe or not accept, or you know? And I said, well, what if the dead stop staying dead? It seems like a pretty, you know, something that should uh, catch your eye. Revolutionary. Uh, uh, so that's what I went with. But to, in my mind, they were just ghouls. They were flesh eaters. My original title was Night of the Flesh Eaters. And when we, the, when Walter Reed picked it up for distribution, they changed the title to, to Night of the Living Dead, which was their title. That was yours. Yeah. And that's how we lost our copyright. Uh, you, you have some pretty strong social commentary, Night of the Living Dead. I mean, it's the 60s. You got a black guy smacking a white woman. Yeah. In the 60s. <laughs> Did you ever get in trouble for that? I mean, did, did the clan ever call you? Or? <laughs> no, Dwayne was afraid they might call him. I, you know, I didn't realize what how we had written the script uh, colorless. I mean, the, the guy was not the, the guy's race was not described. No, and, and, and there's no racial, there's no racist epithets anywhere in the movie. No, and we decided that was what we were most proud of is that when Dwayne agreed to do it, we didn't change the script. Right. Uh, he argued, and I think now maybe he was right that we should have, not yeah. to not to make it you know an angry black-white confrontational thing, but to just address it. Oh, maybe, but uh, and uh, because he's wrong in the end, and his point was that sometimes a, a person in a minority can see sees certain things much more clearly than a person in the majority. But anger can mask certain other things, and that's really what happens to this character. He's, you know, he gets so pissed off that he starts seeing things only his way, and he winds up making a mistake in the end. And then Dwayne felt all along that we should address that. Really? Yeah. And um, so they should have gone in the basement. They should have gone in the basement. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I mean, you got him saying, "Look, I'm the boss. Yeah. This is I'm fighting for everything up here." Yeah. Now he gets shot in the head at the very end. No one took you aside and was like. Yeah, oh yeah, we couldn't, we, we didn't get distributed for quite a while because of that. We, there were a couple of distributors that wanted it and wouldn't take it unless we changed the ending. And you know, naively, we just said, oh yeah, fuck you. <laughs> that was Max Brooks interviewing George A. Romero at Comic-Con 2008. After the vigil, I also spoke with Angelica Millick, who was at the 2008 Zombie Walk after the Romero panel. So tell me about George Romero and what his films mean to you. His films mean so much to me. I mean, growing up, I saw the series and I kind of, I used to love all kinds of horror and I found myself more and more drawn to zombies, specifically the George Romero movies. And I think at the time I didn't realize what was going on, but there's, there was something very subversive about them. And as I got older, I realized there was a lot of, you know, this whole other layer of the social commentary in it. And it just drew me even more into it. And I went, wow, like this guy is using something that on the surface just looks like a bunch of undead, 
people walking around, but it really has a deep meaning to it. And I just, that always stayed with me. Do you have a favorite Romero zombie film? You know, I like Dawn of the Dead. That one's just so great. And what is it about the zombie that is both appealing and terrifying? I think the terrifying part is, you know, you look at your friends and your family, you know who they are, and you know you know who you are, and to see a zombie, they're not that person anymore. Their whole personality has been stripped away from them. And I think that's something that's just really terrifying. Like something for me is, I used to love gory horror movies, and the gore never bothered me unless someone messed with the brain, because the brain is where your, your personality is, it's where your humanity is, your compassion, everything that makes you you. And when you're a zombie, all of that is gone. It's just the body is still there. And there's something so terrifying about that. I think the appealing part is it gives us, as far as entertainment, it gives us something through which we can channel our fears as society. We can channel our fears of, you know, viruses breaking out of laboratories or, you know, nuclear war or, you know, witchcraft and occultism. So I think it gives us a way that we can express our fears. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was Romero fan Angelica Millick. Although Steve Barton had spoken during the vigil, he still had an excess of emotions over the loss of his friend and filmmaker George Romero. So while sitting outside a crowded bar in the Gaslamp District, right outside the convention center where Comic-Con is held, Steve gathered his thoughts for one more tribute to the godfather of the undead. Hey, everybody. This is Steve Uncle Creepy Barton from DreadCentral.com, and... This conversation, if it's a little noisy, is because we're at Comic-Con 2017 and we just finished the George A. Romero Memorial Vigil. And uh, being that we're all in the moment still, I, I, I figured this was a perfect time to say a few things about the man George Romero was and the filmmaker he was. In my career, I've been lucky enough to uh, have met a legend. I met a lot of people that I'll never forget, but... George Romero was something special. And I think he was so special because he never wanted to be known as special. He just wanted to be known as George. He had this way about him of just instantly disarming people and making them feel welcome. And, you know, a lot of people would be intimidated by this man because he's made so many classic movies. And the coolest thing about George is while... A lot of film critics and and film fans would sit there and pour over his movies, dissecting things and and looking at them and tearing them apart and building them back up. At the end of the day, George was just having a good time making movies, man. That was never his intention. The reason why things came so socially relevant is he was just speaking what was on his mind at the time. But at the end of the day, he never expected anyone to think of his work as something that should be studied. He just was trying to make movies, have a good time, and tell stories, and do so on his own terms. And if George did anything in his life, he did it on his own terms. He is a sterling example of everything that is right about independent filmmaking. And he was a genuinely good soul there there how do you quantify what this man has brought us what this man has done as a as a filmmaker 
he built a family, and, and that's why he's so beloved. Like when George would go to a convention and sign, he would stay no matter how long it took to sign everything for everybody and make them feel special. He wasn't just ever, hey, how you doing? I'm George. He would take the time with every fan, even if there was hundreds in line, to just make them feel like this moment was special for him and as special for him as it was for them. And it truly was. George loved meeting his fans. He, he, he would get giddy. You know, I mean, I, I would talk to him after a convention and he would be like, you know, there are so many people here and so many people that want to talk to me. And he goes, I just have no effing idea why, man. And that's the essence of George. In a lot of ways, he was a giant and not just because he was 6'4". He was a giant among men with true hearts and true vision. And as I said earlier, you know, in 1967, the lead of Night of the Living Dead couldn't make it. And he employed an African-American actor to be the lead. And he didn't do it as stunt casting. He wasn't thinking of it as a controversial move like most people would. He just picked the best man for the job. And decades later, we can still learn a lot from George Romero. That was Steve Barton of Dread Central. And here's my 2008 interview with George A. Romero. I began the interview by asking about that opening scene from Diary of the Dead and about how clever it was. Oh, man. I mean, I don't, I don't know what there is to say. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like a way to introduce the style and to introduce the whole, you know, thematic thing about media. And, and that's, of course, while the mainstream is sort of still uh, functioning, it's, it's the very first uh, uh, report of these things. And then I also wanted something that I could show again a couple of times later and show that they were distorting it, changing it, trying to clean it up and uh so it just seemed like uh the, the way to go you know you get these ideas in the shower you know <laughs> and uh that's uh that's really where it came from it, it it just seemed to fit the whole theme of the film and it gave me a device that i could sort of keep using throughout the film now did you show up as the cop in the later version of it well, I'm a guy that's sort of lying about it. You know, I represent uh, the, the uh, sort of authority figure that's, that's uh, not telling the truth. They weren't dead until my guys made them dead. So I felt, well, okay. I used to always, you know, part of the, the reason for doing this film was sort of a throwback. I wanted to go back to a simpler way of doing things and to, uh, you know, something smaller and more controllable, literally where I had complete control. Uh, and which I did for the first time since Night of the Living Dead. I just, I used to always sort of do a little cameo in, in uh, all, I don't know, the first sort of uh, eight of my films, I always did a little cameo. So I said, well, since we're sort of flashing back in time, I'll, I'll do it again. I'll, I'll come back and do one here. So was this kind of desire to have more control, was that in part a reaction to doing Land of the Dead, where it was a, a bigger studio film for you? You know, uh, when we made Land of the Dead, it was universal, and I was sort of terrified going in, figuring, oh, I mean, everybody warned me, it's terrible working with Universal there, the, the blue meanies in the black tower. 
and they were great. I mean, in the end, they really wanted my film, and they wanted they they let us and they let my partner and I make it exactly where we wanted to make it, and they were great to work with. It was just a grueling uh, uh, experience making that movie, and it still was guerrilla filmmaking because it was even though we had more money than I'd ever had on a zombie film, it wasn't enough money to pull off something that ambitious. And so uh, it was just constantly, every night, you know, compromises. Geez, we didn't get that shot. So even after coming off the set, we'd be up for another three hours figuring out what are we going to do tomorrow. It was just grueling. And there was something about it when it got all finished. Uh, even though I liked the film a lot, it was a bit, it was approaching Thunderdome. It was getting a bit too big. And I felt it had an out, outscaled its origins in a certain sense. I mean, when we made the first film, we were just a bunch of young people in Pittsburgh that went out and made a movie. And uh, I, I sort of really wanted to get back to that. And I had this idea uh, about doing something about this, all this emerging media. And uh, I felt the best way to do that is to go back to the very first night and sort of tell a parallel story that happens on the, the same, the first night. Uh, of Night of the Living Dead. And in fact, used some of the news tracks from the original Night of the Living Dead in this film to just indicate that it's meant to be the same night and same event. Uh, and uh, I just felt that that was a way to just simplify my life and sort of get back to the roots of the of the series. Now, your zombie films have always entailed a lot of social commentary as well. So, what was what were you interested kind of in commenting on in this particular film? It occurred to me, and still occurs to me, that what's happening with this this sort of new normal of of the media is 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 that everyone is becoming obsessed with the idea of being a reporter, and uh, you know we're invited to if something happens outside your window, shoot it, and we'll put it on the air. And uh, this blogosphere, which strikes me as being a bit dangerous, I mean there could be some lunatic out there. And, uh, advancing radical ideas, which if they sound at all reasonable, they're going to, you know, all of a sudden there's a million, two million followers. And it strikes me as uh, dangerous in that it can create just more tribalism when it's the last thing we need. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I joke and I say if Jim Jones had thrown up a blog, there'd be millions of people drinking Kool-Aid. And uh, it, it, it bothers me. Plus the fact that people are getting, they, they get sucked into it. They think, oh, I can be a reporter. I'll take footage of this uh, tornado, and I'll get it on the air, and maybe I can help, you know, and it's all sort of this feeling that maybe we can, maybe we can help, maybe we can be part, become, it's almost a new kind of graffiti, uh, trying to establish a personal identity, and all of that just strikes me as being a bit odd and a bit dangerous, and I wanted to do something about that, and that's where it came from. Now, the film obviously displays a certain distrust for the mainstream media, but should we also kind of distrust the the point of views that were given from these student filmmakers as well as they start oh, to put their stuff? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I don't think that it attacks the... I mean, the mainstream media obviously is being manipulative. What's happening out in the blogosphere is that people think that they're helping and that they're, you know, but it's really little more than opinion. And, and uh, it, it's completely uncontrolled. I mean, maybe we're being manipulated and, and, and overly managed by the mainstream, but that's almost forgivable. I mean, I don't know if people are ready to have, uh, you know, a million bloggers out there advancing this point of view and that point of view. 
uh, and 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 you know, all of a sudden, the you know, people listen to Limbaugh because they agree with what he says. And what happens with all these blogs is that people that tune into them or become advocates of them or listen to them because they agree with what's being said. And I think that it's that's what I'm talking about is being dangerous. It's just absolutely unfettered, uncontrolled, unmanaged uh, information, which in most cases isn't even information but opinion. And uh, that's the stuff that I think is uh, dangerous. It's very easy to join up, you know, with... Uh, Somebody that you 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 think sounds reasonable, but uh, might you know there actually might be some radical ideas in there. You know, I'm sure Hitler sounded very reasonable to the people he was talking to at first. Talk a little bit about the fact that you have a, a group of these student filmmakers who are the ones making this film. You seem to have some fun with that and kind of deconstructing the whole horror genre through them in part. Well, I'm taking a little, few little shots at myself there, and uh, and I couldn't help but make a few jokes about fast-moving zombies, and uh, I, you know, I I can't resist uh, sort of some, a little bit of slapstick and some humor here and there. But yeah, I was taking a shot at it, but it was also it was a breath of fresh air. I mean, these characters in this film reminded me very much of us when we were making uh, Night of the Living Dead, the first film, and so it was it was sort of a uh, you know reliving it as kind of a nostalgic, uh, in a way, experience. So it, it was, um, you know, and I just felt that was the way to do it. I mean, that was really one of my initial ideas. If I was going to do something about this, what's the logical way to do it? Well, these film students are out shooting a school project, and they have a camera. And so when the zombies begin to walk, they just naturally, at least the one of them, one of them at first, and then eventually many others among them, become obsessed with this idea. They just start documenting it and think that they're trying to help and possibly even can save some lives. Uh, But, you know, in the meantime, the situation is, you know, far outruns everybody. And, uh, you know, it's it's like uh, too late to really do anything about it. Well, what I really appreciated about how you use that first-person camera is a lot of films recently have been doing some of that. But you made such clever use of things like the battery dying and the guy being plugged in and not being able to see what we want to see (laughs) at a certain point in the hospital? Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that the way it would be? I mean, that's happened to me shooting home movies, you know, and I can't get over to the birthday cake because i got to stay plugged in. I don't know. Again, those are all ideas that come to you in the shower. And again, you know, I was collaborating with my partner, uh, uh, Peter Grinwald, and and we had an old friend, John Harrison, and, you know, I mean, literally, man, even sort of the planning of this film, we would sit around in the living room, it was just like the old days, just sort of, you know, spitballing ideas and having fun with it. And that's really what we set out to do, and that's what I guess we were able to do. And uh, it was great to have enough control to be able to do it, you know. The only thing that when you're working for a studio or when you have, uh, you know, a lot of layers of, of suits between you and the work is, you know, you see a sunset and you want to shoot it, you have to write a memo in order to get permission to shoot it. That's, you know, we were able to do anything we wanted to do all the way through post-production. So it was really like going back to the old days. How do you feel about your film coming out on the heels of Cloverfield, which uses some of this, you know, the, this first-person camera and, and it had a much bigger budget and people were calling Cloverfield, you know, independent and experimental. And, you know, that seems like it has quite a bit more Hollywood backing. I was just wondering how you feel about your film coming out on the, the, the heels of that film. 
You know, man, I've never been concerned about that. I didn't know about it when we were making our film, but it seems to be there is some sort of a collective subconscious. I mean, you had Redacted, now Cloverfield, there's Vantage Point. There's, I think everyone is noticing. I think it's, you know, it, it's, in the, it's in the consciousness of, people, of filmmakers, this, this, this idea of this, you know, I am a camera. I mean, there's just a million cameras out there. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a marketing guy. I made a film that that it, that I wanted to make. It sort of from the heart, and I can't relate it to Cloverfield. I almost don't care about it. I mean, I've seen people that say, "Well, you, you, you can't compare it to Cloverfield," and other people have said, "Well, Cloverfield got it wrong, and and Romero got it right." I don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. There's no way to control it. Uh, so all you can do is hope for the best. And my stuff is my stuff, you know, and, and it's always been sort of me. And uh, I don't know if there's anything that I'm, uh, you know, that I can say that I'm sort of proud of is that, I've, you know, I've never just sort of taken a job, if you know what I mean. This is an idea that I had, and, you know, I hope people like it. I mean, obviously, on a certain level, Cloverfield is this huge thing, and we're, we don't mean to be competing with it in that sense. This is, uh, you know, it's an idea that I had, and, and uh, happily a lot of people seem to be, uh, tuning into it and you know and getting it, so um, that's enough for me. Now, when you made your made Night of the Living Dead, did you ever think that you would be able to return to that material so often and be able to mine it for something fresh? Some what thirty? Never. <laughs> I never thought I'd do another one. I resisted doing another one for like ten years, and you know what happened with Night of the Living Dead? It initially went out. It played drive-ins, neighborhood theaters. Six months, it was gone. But it had actually returned some money. You know, it cost us about 115 grand return, five, six hundred thousand, and we thought, okay, that was a nice exercise, and we actually made some bread. And I was working on my third film when suddenly the French discovered uh, uh, *Night of the Living Dead* and began calling it essential American cinema. And I'm going, all right, man. I mean, I didn't know how to make a movie. I mean, all I saw were the mistakes in it. Uh, and then I got—I almost froze up. I said, "Christ, if I'm going to do a sequel or another one, I'm going to have to be as socially conscious." And it became uh, an obsession. And I—and so I waited until I sort of got an idea. The second film I made was in a about, you know shopping mall. People hold up in a shopping mall, and I had—I met the people socially who had developed this first big indoor temple to consumerism in Western Pennsylvania. It gave me the idea. And then I was trying to be as conscious as I could, but it was I was I realized I was doing it without innocence. And halfway through that production, I sort of shifted gears and said, "Wait a minute, I can I can really have fun with this and try to make it reflective of the times and try to make it uh, a comment that doesn't sort of take over the thrill ride part of the film." And that that's really when I I developed this sort of conceit. And uh, I waited consciously another 10 years to do uh, Day of the Dead and, uh, and waited until I, I felt that I could, again, reflect something different about the times. And the same with Land. This one came quicker, but I, I, did, I felt I got the idea while we were shooting Land of the Dead. And, and I wanted to do something about this blogosphere. And I actually was concerned that, you know, people were going to start to do the same thing. And actually, as it turns out, they, several people were doing the same thing. So we did it, but it came, it grew out of the idea. It didn't come from, it didn't at all come from, you know, somebody saying, hey, make another one, we can make money on it. It wasn't like that at all. It really, the, the idea came first. Now, at the Comic-Con, you said you had in the works possibly a balls-out comedy zombie 
film yeah. is is that still a possibility? It's still a possibility. I love it. It's just it literally is, uh, as you say, it literally is a ball draft comedy. It's just uh, you know. It's a completely slapstick kind of, uh, and again, it would be fun for me. It would almost be like going on a vacation doing that. I'd love to do it. Uh, again, completely different. It has nothing to do with any of the other films. It has nothing to do with either of the, the storylines. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like Fido or, or Shaun of the Dead or something. It's you know sort of a sidebar, which just happens to have a zombie in it, one single zombie. And um, I'd love to do it. I hope that somebody, uh, you know, sees enough merit in it to uh, give me the dough. <laughs> I wish I had won the lottery. I could do that now. <laughs> me um, too. I would do it in the New York Minute if I had the dough. But um, anyway. Um, you mentioned that you used some of the original audio tracks from Night of the Living Dead. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the audio in the film because it's fairly layered and there's a lot going on just in the audio. Well, there is, and that's where we were able to, you know, that's where I was sort of able to get my little messages, my little, you know, elbows and asides in uh, on on the radio and TV broadcasts that they're, that they're downloading. And, you know, I had a bunch of buddies that came out to do voice tracks for that, which was, you know, it was really gratifying. I mean, I called these guys up and said, hey, I got all these, I need all these news voices. Will you want to do one? And everybody said yes. I mean, it, Steve King did one, Tarantino, uh, Wes Craven, Guillermo del Toro. I mean, all, you know, all my old buddies came out and said, sure, man. So that, it was fun. And there, there is, you know, much of the message is in there and in this narration. Which, and we held off on writing any of that stuff. The, uh, our main objective when we were on the set was to get the main, the main action, the principal action done that involved principal characters. And we were saying to ourselves, well, these are film students, and after they have everything in the can, somebody is going to go and finish this movie. And we said, we can do the same thing. And that's exactly what we did. We had all the principal action in the can, and then we came home and you know, started to work on it. And uh, I was changing some of those audio tracks right down until the last couple of days before the film premiered. Uh, it, 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 we were able to work with it like clay, you know, um, move the sculpture a little bit this way, a little bit that way. And that was also uh, uh, a result of having the freedom to be able to do that, you know. And your film still delivers on the gore, too, which is quite fun. <laughs> do you still enjoy that? You know, I enjoy it, but I, I also was getting a bit tired of that, too. I mean, I felt initially like I needed to do it. I had, you know, because people wanted it, and I also felt that it was kind of a slap in the face. You know, it's sort of like the operating room sequences in MASH, where, you know, you're watching this comedy and laughing your head off, and then all of a sudden there's this operating surgical room scene, and it just slaps you, and you says, guys, you know, there's something to think about here. This is war. And that was my sort of rationale for doing it, but again, with Land of the Dead, when you're shooting a, an objective film with objective cameras, the tendency is to go in and basically do what I call product shots on the gore. And uh, when we were doing this film, I said, wait, I think it's maybe more effective and, and it'll be a little more realistic because these kids are not going to go in and do close-ups on the gore. They're going to shoot it from across the room. And, and I felt that when we started to look at dailies, I said, wow, this is even more effective than sort of going in for a close-up on it. And uh, 
So it's there, and it is maybe pound for pound as much as there is in land, because land is also R-rated. It's objective. It's as if you were shooting it yourself, like shooting a home movie. So it comes and it goes a little more quickly, and it's, and it's only viewed from a, a certain perspective, you know, which is sort of way over here across the room. Maybe you could zoom in, but not that far. Uh, and I, it was meant to be through the eyes of the, of the individual cameraman. And I find it, in a way, uh, more effective than going in for all those uh, close-ups. I know you're on a tight schedule, but one last question. I was just wondering what you think of today's horror films, if you enjoy any of them or like anything in particular? Enjoy them? No, I can just say that without, without qualification. I don't understand them. I don't understand this sort of, you know, uh, porn uh, stuff. I mean, uh, you know, gore porn or torture porn. I don't get it. I wish somebody could give me a reason. You know, I mean, well, it's an angry time, so these films are angry. Angry at what? I mean, I don't find any political statement in them. Uh, uh, I don't know. You know, when we were angry in the 60s, we were basically, you know, we were angry at, at the police, at the military. We were, you know, we were angry at institutions. It strikes me that just being angry uh, isn't enough of a reason to, to make a, a cruel film. I've always tried to not make my films cruel. I mean, they may be angry, but there's, I, I try to not make them cruel uh, and try to lighten the load with some humor and all that. I mean, you know, being angry, angry is one thing. I mean, Dr. Strangelove is an angry movie, but it's hilarious. Uh, so, I don't know. I guess I'm more of a traditionalist that way. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. Bye-bye. That was George A. Romero from a 2008 interview. He passed away on July 16th and will be deeply missed. But he leaves a legacy of great films and an army of zombies who simply won't stay dead. So till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.